This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Today on Something You Should Know, great life hacks that you will use from getting more ink out of your printer, getting in and out of the airport quicker, what you can do with butter and ketchup, to scoring a cheaper hotel room. It's quite amazing if you use an app or a website on your smartphone, you will save a ton of money for the identical hotel room than if you use your laptop or your desktop. Plus, staying safe from cancer in the sun. It isn't as simple as just using sunscreen. In fact, some people think sunscreen is part of the problem and why political debates and discussions have gotten so nasty. I think one of the reasons is it's more effective. You know, if you can't win an argument, shriek. Call people names. And that wasabi you get with your sushi may not be real wasabi at all. So what is it? And what is real wasabi? All this coming up on Something You Should Know. Hey, a shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, I'm what you call a seasonal allergy sufferer. Stuffy nose, watery eyes. If you have seasonal allergies, you know what I'm talking about. I don't sleep as well because I'm all stuffed up. Food doesn't taste as good. Luckily, though, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Now, I know people with allergies who just, you know, they just live with it. And, well, that's a strategy. But why? If there's relief, why not try it? Claritin D is designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Everyone in my house who has allergies takes Claritin D. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount. So you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, and welcome to another Something You Should Know Choice Weekend episode. And there are a lot of things we're going to learn together in this episode. You may even want to get a pen and paper because you're going to discover some pretty cool facts and life hacks that I can guarantee you will come in handy and, and will also make you appear to be much more brilliant than perhaps you even are to all the people who know you 
when you share some of these life hacks and practical advice. Also today, wasabi. You know that green stuff you get when you order sushi in a Japanese restaurant? Do you know what it really is, what wasabi, where it comes from? And did you know that, in fact, in the United States, many times the wasabi you get with your sushi isn't really wasabi at all. It's something else entirely. We're going to take a look at that. It's actually a, a very interesting topic. Plus, if, if you watch the cable news channels, you don't have to watch very long before some political discussion just turns into a fight. People screaming and yelling and calling each other names. And, and what, what's happened? What, why is that? Why has, anytime anybody talks about any controversial topic, does it so often deteriorate into a yelling match and, and, and demonizing the other person. And, and it's, so what, what's going on? We're going to talk with someone who's looked into this and has some ideas as to why this is and maybe what we could do to maybe tone it down a little bit. And first up today, your skin and the sun. Now, that hardly sounds controversial. I mean, most moms and most dermatologists agree that you should always put on sunscreen when you go outside. But actually... This topic is controversial because there are plenty of people who cite research that shows that sunscreen does very little to prevent skin cancer. In fact, in the last 35 years, as people have increased sunscreen use and avoided being out in the sun, the rate of melanoma, the deadly skin cancer that people get, has actually tripled. Now, this has led some people to believe that sunscreen may actually be contributing to the problem. Well, we'll let the scientists hash all this out, but one thing the research is pretty clear on is that your diet can help prevent skin cancer, and that is for sure. A diet that includes a lot of fruits and vegetables, fish, herbs, that seems to have a very protective effect against melanoma. And we know this because in regions of the world where people eat this way, the rate of skin cancer is substantially lower than it is here in the United States. And that is something you should know. My first guest today is about to make your life so much easier. He is David Pogue. You've probably seen him around. He's been profiled on 60 Minutes and 48 Hours and He's a correspondent for CBS's Sunday Morning Show and a host of science shows for PBS's Nova. And uh, he's also written some books, and, and one book he wrote is called Pogue's Basics Life. And it is all these life hacks and tips that he has found and researched, and and these things are great. I mean, they can really save you time and money. And and so, David, explain how you collected all these these life hacks Part of it is that it's a a personal failure of mine. I have no tolerance for steps. I have no tolerance for inefficiently designed mechanisms. So my entire life, I'm looking for shorter, more efficient ways to do things. So they come from my brain. They came from my followers on Twitter. They came from everybody I spoke to for a year telling them I was working on this book. And almost everybody's got one or two of their own. So it's it's an amalgamation. So since there's so many, um, let's just have you dive in, first of all, with some of your favorites. Well, I love the ones where some designer put in some feature that's really cool, but, but the word just never got out. So the classic case is the American highway sign, those green highway signs. It's a big sign that says, you know, Poughkeepsie, five miles. 
But then above that is a small sign that has the exit number, exit 23. The side of the big sign that the small sign appears on tells you which side of the highway the exit will be on. So if it says exit 23 on the left of the big sign, that's the side of the highway to be in when you exit. And I mean, it's always been there, but whoever communicated that to us? Well, and or, uh, but, but most exits are on the right anyway, so, <clears throat> you know, it's only the occasional one that's on the left. So, But it's good to know when it is on the left that that's, that's on the left. Exactly right. And, and a similar example is in the car. Maybe about half of everybody knows this one. Um, on your fuel gauge where it says E to F, there's a tiny picture of a gas pump with an arrow pointing either to the left or the right. And that arrow tells you which side of the car your gas tank is on. And you, you probably know which side of your, your own car's gas tank is on, but if you're in a rental or a borrowed car, it tells you which way to pull into the gas station. So pick one or describe one that has impacted you the most or that you found really fascinating. Sure. Um, th- this is the one that's changed my life the most. Um, someday most of us will be over 40 and start to need reading glasses or contacts. turns out if you're caught without them, can't find them, you don't have them in, or you're in the shower or something, you can use the pinhole camera effect. You, you take your hand and curl your index finger very tightly until there's just a pinhole left. Hold it up to your eye and look through it. And incredibly, you can suddenly read again without glasses. So it's great for menus in restaurants or the, the little bottles in the shower in a hotel. Um, it, it, it works by, as a photographer would say, decreasing the aperture so that it keeps everything in focus. It's, it's quite amazing. Talk about, um, well, here's one, uh, getting, getting the last of the ketchup out of the bottle. Yeah, my mom suggested this one. Um, people trying to get the, the last ketchup out of the bottle will pound on it, they'll bang it, but there's a much easier, more efficient way. Hold the bottle from the bottom and swing it around your body like centrifugal force. And amazingly, that forces the ketchup instantly down into the neck of the bottle where you can just open the cap and, and pour it out. It works with mustard and children's toothpaste and all kinds of jelly substances. So how many times have people, you know, been printing out some important thing and the printer cartridge runs out of ink and you have a way to save it? Yeah, you can, you can coax more ink out of inkjet cartridges by blow-drying them. Take them out, heat it up with a blow-dryer, and put the cartridge back into the printer, you'll get another 5% or so out of the ink that was there. So it'll, it'll save that print job that was about to end. And why have I been tying my shoes all wrong? <laughs> it turns out that the way they taught us to tie our shoes uh, actually creates a granny knot. It's, it's a slip knot, and that's why children's shoes come untied, for example. Um, in the first step of tying your shoes, you're holding one lace in each hand, and most people have the left lace in front of the right lace before they duck it under and, and tighten it. Switch that. Put the right lace in front of the left lace as you do that first crossover, and then proceed as usual with the loop. That knot will not come undone until you want to undo it. Now, you have a way to re-record a voicemail message, but I thought it kind of depended on the system people had. Um, no, it doesn't. I mean, many of the, many of the commands determine, you know, are determined by whether you have Verizon, AT&T, or whatever. 
But this one happens to work on all four of the American uh, carriers. So if you're leaving a message for somebody and you press the pound key, doesn't matter what carrier the person uses, they, a voice prompt gives you three options. And number three, press number three, always gives you the chance to delete the voicemail you've just left and try it again. So if you change your mind or if you think a, a more conservative wording would be better, press pound and then three. Works for all the carriers. Why is uh, renting a hotel room from my phone cheaper than my computer? Turns out that every hotel wants to sell their unsold hotel rooms, of course. So as the day of the, of the lodging approaches, they make the price lower on smartphones than on computers because they're trying to appeal to business travelers and millennials and, and people who make last-minute hotel arrangements. But it's quite amazing. If you use an app or a website on your smartphone, you will save a ton of money for the identical hotel room using the identical booking service than if you use your laptop or your desktop. Uh, there's a way to get an, uh, a customer service phone number for just about anybody, right? Google it. <laughs> Google knows every customer service number. You don't have to wade through people's websites trying to find it. Just type, you know, Burger King 800 number and you'll get it. But isn't, you've also got a website too called, what was it? Contact Help? Oh, right. That's right. <laughs> I forgot about that one. Uh, yeah. Contacthelp.com. It, uh, they have a database of the world's companies, email, phone, web, the whole thing. You know which one I found really interesting in the book was about butter? Sure. Um, everyone thinks they have to refrigerate butter because it's a dairy product and it'll go bad. No, it won't. Even the USDA website says it's okay to leave butter out of the refrigerator for many weeks. And the advantage of that, of course, is that it's always soft and therefore more spreadable. Um, and the reason it works is because bacteria can't grow in food without moisture, without water. And butter is almost entirely fat. What water there is is sealed into tiny little cells. So it, it's true. You do not need to refriger refrigerate butter. And in Europe, nobody does. I like to think I'm up on these kind of things because I do all these interviews with people, but that one I'd never heard. I always thought you had to refrigerate butter. I just changed your life, sir. You have. You've changed <laughs> profoundly. It's just amazing. <laughs> so this one about finding your lost dog, has anybody ever, uh, you know, by putting this stuff down and hope that they come back, has anybody ever studied that to see if it really works or you're just kind of hoping it does? Oh, no. This is this is something that uh, is is proven. So... If you can't find your dog, you, you leave out things that smell like him. You, you put out the blanket, the toy, some water, and, and by the way, a note to let other people know not to disturb that stuff. And, you know, in, in many cases, the dog will come back to you. Um, that's, you know, veterinary science at work. And the dog comes back. Yeah, in many cases. I mean, you're much better off doing that than not doing that. Yeah. Well, you're right. What could it hurt while you're trying other things? Yeah. All right, last one. You you, you pick one more, uh, hit it out of the park for me, and, and we're done. <laughs> All right. I'm going to change your listeners' lives. When you're picking up somebody at the airport, pick them up at the departures level. Even though they're arriving, meet them at departures. And the reason is they don't have security guys chasing cars away 
at the departures level because most people just arrive, drop off, and leave. Nobody's hanging out. So you'll have the opportunity to sit there in your car at the curb, not be chased away, and greet the person coming out. It works, you know, most the, much better if they don't have luggage. But even if they do, it's sometimes better for them to go up a level so that you can wait for them. But you have some things that, um, in the back of the book about some things that don't work, that people think work. That's true. The Internet is wishful thinking land, and people send these things around like crazy. They're, they're called life hacks, and they're, <laughs> most of them don't work. Um, some of them are just silly. Like, if you're ever caught out in the woods camping without kindling, you can light Doritos as kindling. Well, uh, okay, but wh- who's camping when they have Doritos but not wood? Or a great example is uh, you can make a piece of leftover pizza crisp again by microwaving it next to a cup of water. It's like, no, it doesn't work at all. You're just going to make it mushier that way. So every one of these book tips in the book has been uh, pogue tested and certified. I like this one because I've always thought it was true was you tap on the top of a soda can uh, if it's been shaken and that will prevent it from spewing when you open it. Yeah, it does not work. Um, If it seems to work, it's only because you're waiting longer. You're taking time with the tapping for the bubbles to to settle down. But it it does not, in fact, make any difference whether you tap the can or not. And time is the only thing that will settle it down. That is correct. Great. Thanks, David. It's always good to have you on. You, you You have so much stuff that just makes my life complete, makes me smarter, and uh, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. David Pogue is the author of the book Pogue's Basics Life, and he is correspondent for the CBS Sunday Morning Show. There's a link to his book and to his website on the show notes page for this podcast episode at somethingyoushouldknow.net. In a moment... Why has discussing politics, or or really any controversial topic, gotten so nasty? And what can we do about it? Plus, if you like Japanese food, well, you know about wasabi. But what is it exactly? Where does it come from? And why very often is the wasabi you get fake? All that's coming up on Something You Should Know. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. It seems to have gotten to the point today where talking politics can be dangerous. I mean, if you watch politicians on television, or or really anybody who's talking or or debating a controversial issue, uh, gun control, abortion, any topic, it's so quickly deteriorates into name-calling and yelling and 
The idea of agree to disagree just, just isn't what it used to be. So what's going on here? Why is the goal now not necessarily to discuss the topic, but to demonize the other side? To take a look at that is James Hogan. He has been a public relations executive for many years, and he has a book which is titled I'm Right and You're an Idiot, which, which pretty much sums up the problem. So, James, why have things deteriorated to this level? Why, every time people, it seems, talk controversial topics or politics, it can get so nasty? One of the things I've noticed, I've been in the public relations business for 25 years, and I used to be in the persuasion business. Now people in my business are in the polarizing business. And our job is basically to take even science or evidence and infuse a kind of partisan meaning into it so that it's not something that my team believes. And if you do believe it, then you must be part of their team. Yeah. So but, but why did it change? Where, when did it change? I think there's... I think one of the reasons is it's more effective. And I think it's uh, one of the things uh, Noam Chomsky said to me was, you know, if you can't win an argument, shriek. Call people names. <laughs> you know, do anything to, not, to avoid having to try to make an argument. So that, and that's what people are doing. That's right. Some of these issues are impossible. And so in order to kind of prevail, whether it's in politics or in business <clears throat> or in policy, uh, you need to resort to this kind of highly polarizing methodology. And yet, most of us would think that, or I would think, that that, that didn't work because, you know, if people treat me like I'm an idiot, um, I'm not going to cooperate. No, it works for the status quo. So, so if you're fighting change, say you're in the oil business, uh, it works, it works for you to, to confuse things to such a level that nothing happens. No one, people just throw their hands up and walk away. So I think we, we give the, whole, the, the, the role of reason too much credit in democracy. I mean, ad hominem attacks have been around since democracy began. But now they, with the growth of social science, maybe a hundred years of it, right, there is, it's become much more sophisticated. And so really what's happening is you don't have to get involved in the actual argument. You just have to make the case that that, that other person is kind of not worthy of, in, of, of, of even participating in the debate. You, you know, call them names. But I think people, like, them. people like to think that... I can see through that, that I'm, I sh- I'm smart enough to be able to, to see that for what it is, and what's really important to me are the issues at hand. Right. Big mistake. We tend to look for people who think like us and before we decide what to believe. And so it's very easy for people like us who have belonged to our tribe to manipulate us, and that is the way this works. So what are you suggesting? Are you suggesting we be more civil, or are you suggesting we take, uh, we take advantage of this new snippy, <laughs> nasty tone and use it to our advantage? The first step 
is assuming that people who disagree with you don't have bad intentions and that aren't the, and that they're not idiots and being open to their views uh, and i think that kind of a process can it's not always going to work it's not like silver bullet but it can start a different kind of conversation where people start to listen more to each other because it's the listening that's missing so can you give me an example to kind of fill in the blanks here of how that how that, that explain what you mean um, I guess you know a good example would be climate change. The when you look at how polarized it is, it's kind of like a fight between good and evil. And I think uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, people who run oil companies are not evil. Even though we need to do something about climate change, they have a lot to say. <laughs> and so you could have a conversation about that. Uh, and I have had those conversations, even though I'm. Uh, a climate change advocate at doing so. I think we need to do something about it. That it's a very serious problem. That said, just because someone doesn't agree with me doesn't mean that uh, they're um, that are a wrongdoer or they're sort of evil, and that this should be like a David and Goliath battle. The fact is, if you don't, these kinds of issues are so big and so difficult that if you don't get people who are on the other side of the issue to work with you to move towards a solution, even when you have to compromise, uh, there won't be solutions. And so that's a very good example, I think, oil companies and environmental advocates. Yeah. Does this apply, do you think, just in day-to-day life, the the way we just deal with people in our lives, the same, same rules apply? Yeah, it's funny because that's not what I was writing the book about. I was writing the book about the public square and this idea that just like you can pollute the natural environment, you can pollute the public square with this kind of unyielding one-sidedness. But over and over again, uh, people have come up to me and said, yeah, this is exactly what I just broke up with so-and-so. And and they tell this story that it's, you know, it might as well be magnified into a political debate. But very similar types of skills that are used. And we tend to be we don't tend to be good listeners. Certainly that's my, in my case, it's something I have to work at. And I think there's a lot of people like me. And we, we tend not to, we tend to sort of jump to defending our side ra- too quickly rather than kind of looking for common ground. I mean, there are people who are, who are gifted that they're not like that, but a lot of us are. And you know, I think people tend to respond better when you acknowledge that they may have a point and that you keep in mind that it's not just they who could be an under, unknowingly under the influence of bias, but you could have that problem as well. I'm speaking with James Hogan. His book is called I'm Right and You're an Idiot. So James, there are so many conversations where people are not just disagreeing or agreeing to disagree, they truly believe the other person is wrong. There is no common ground. Abortion is a a good example of that. There is no compromise in abortion. You either have it or you don't. There's no middle ground. Some of the the issues are like that. That's that's true. See, I think the thing that's different today is that this has become professionalized. And people in my business, in the public relations business, 
are no longer really in the persuasion business. They're in the polarizing business. And when you have these kinds of highly polarized um, issues, and you never get to the point where, where solutions can be implemented or there's a discussion about how you fix it. It's always just these kinds of, uh, this kind of butting heads and it doesn't move forward. So there are some issues that I agree with you that are like that. They're win-lose. But there are a lot of other issues where you could find common ground. I mean, no one can convince me that a Republican or a conservative in my country, Canada, uh, isn't just as concerned about clean water and clean air as I am. But, they, but they're often painted that way. That's right. And, it's a, it, you know, the, the bias is on both sides. And we all think we're right, right? And we all have this attitude like, I'm right, you're wrong, let me tell you what, what you should think. That is not a good communication strategy. I can tell you after 30 years of being in the public relations business, it doesn't work. Well, it depends on what work means to you. I mean, it depends on what the goal is, I guess. I think, don't you think the, the goal has changed? It's not so much to come to an agreement or find common ground, it's to demonize the other side. That's right. That's exactly my point. But that leaves you, you know, one of, uh, uh, Carol Tavris was uh, one of the people I interviewed for my book, and she said, you know, if you hear ruckus outside your house, uh, you know, you open the windows to see what's going on, but if there's a ruckus every night, you sort of close the shutters and kind of batten down the hatches and try to ignore it. And that is a very dangerous thing when you have the kinds of problems that are stalking us today, the problems with terrorism and immigration problems, uh, financial problems that are causing so much concern around the world, the, the, the inequity uh, in income, the, the climate change problem. These are, these are problems that you and your friends that you have dinner with who all agree are not going to solve on their own. We need to figure out ways to, deal, to be able to work with people who disagree with us. And this is not, it's not like there's no historical um, example of that. This happened lots of times throughout history, where the right and the left have, have stood together. Uh, Second World War. First World War. <laughs> there's, in the United States, it was Republicans who, uh, who founded the EPA, who set up the national park system. You know, there's, there's plenty of times that people have... Uh, you know, I have a friend who used to be an MP in Canada, and he was like a, you know, very left-of-center guy. The first time I, I went to Parliament was with him, and we're walking through the halls of Parliament, and he's this big, gregacious guy, you know, just hugging everybody, and nearly all the people he was hugging were, like, way on the other side of the floor, ultra-conservatives, in the Mulroney government, like finance ministers. But there was, a, there was a collegiality, even though there was differences. There was an ability to, to be able to, you know, to talk and work things out and, uh, to whatever degree as possible. Well, in this I country, think, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill were often, you know, they were on opposite sides of uh, the political spectrum, but, but were good friends. And so I think we need, uh, for me, I, I understand why we have to polarize. And, and I think that it's, you know, um, advocacy on a whole range of issues have made the world a better place. You know, thank God for Martin Luther King and for many other advocates. 
But we need to also be good at finding common ground. It's not you can't just have one without the other, or you end up in this kind of perpetual. Everything just becomes more and more unreasonable and more and more polarized, and nothing happens. And there are some problems that you can't just leave that way. Well, it is interesting what you said in the beginning that that it's it's gotten this way because it's more effective. You know, it's it's easier to to get people's attention, I guess, when you scream and yell as opposed to try to gently persuade. Or if you're trying to stop change. So if you're if you're trying to if you don't want a solution if you if you if the status quo is fine and for a lot of people the status quo is fantastic so the strategy is a really good strategy but ultimately for for democracy and for the public square this you need a process where there's a to and fro I mean that's the whole idea you know the democracies work the public square is healthy if there's a reasonableness there and reasonableness in the sense of inclusiveness and uh in the sense of uh being able to not just express your side of the story but listen to somebody else's yeah well like you say that seems to be what's missing when people think they're right they don't see a need to listen to the other side of the story because that person doesn't know what they're talking about that's right and and this is not this is just as much of a problem uh, on the right, uh, I mean, on the left, as it is on the right. You know, immunization, there's just as many people who are, have crazy ideas about immunization as there are about people who have crazy ideas about climate change. So finally, what, so what, knowing what you know and having looked at this, so what's the advice? What's the ABC here? <clears throat> well, there's, there was one moment that really kind of stuck with me. And I I spoke to about 70 people. And I spent an afternoon with someone named Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a a Vietnamese Buddhist monk and who's famous on environmental work that he does. And I was asking him about environmental advocacy. And I'm saying, because he was saying, you know, we we should meditate. We should bring meditation into this people calm calm people down so i said you're not saying people shouldn't be advocates are you and he looked at me and he said speak the truth but not to punish and i think that there's a huge amount of wisdom in that this idea that we need to bring a bit of warm-heartedness into the debate and not be so convinced that the other side is ill-intentioned or or an idiot on the issue, but that we should be more open to their views and, and, and realize that there may, in fact, not be that much of a difference. You know, we probably agree on 80%. And being able to kind of move to the 80% sometimes is a helpful way to start to deal with the, the tougher 20%. Well, I'm not terribly optimistic that things are going to change, but it certainly would be nice if we could get back to the, you know, agree to disagree idea and not have to resort to calling people names and screaming and yelling, because it it just doesn't seem to accomplish anything. Good insight, Jim. Thanks for your time. Well, thank you so much. That's James Hogan. His book is I'm Right and You're an Idiot. And there's a link to his book on the show notes page for this podcast. So, you know, when you order sushi at a restaurant, it usually comes with 
you know, usually get some sliced ginger and you get wasabi, that green paste that's pretty spicy. So what is it? Well, it's a pretty interesting question. The wasabi plant itself grows naturally in the bends in rivers in Japan, China, Taiwan, Korea, and New Zealand. And wasabi is almost impossible to grow naturally. So almost all the wasabi is basically grown in the wild. Now, real wasabi, until it's grated from the root, is not spicy. But when it's grated in a circular, clockwise motion, it forms a paste and releases these hot vapors. Now, real wasabi loses its strength after about 15 to 20 minutes, so it has to be served immediately after it's turned into a paste. And real wasabi is expensive, like $100 a pound expensive. That's why the wasabi that we consume in the United States is very often an imposter. It's a dyed blend of horseradish powder and mustard, which are two similar roots that are far, far cheaper. Now, you can tell the difference because actual wasabi is, has a smoother taste than the horseradish mustard stuff that we commonly consume here. And instead of creating a sensation uh, on the tongue and in the mouth... Real wasabi you sense more in your nose and your nasal passages. And that is something you should know. And that is the podcast today. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.